So we're continuing uh, part three now of our review of Matthew, tracing Matthew's intentionally structured presentation of Jesus' ministry to show how it anticipates the Olivet Discourse in chapters 24 to, to 25. And so again, in case you've missed either of those first two messages so far, I just, I, I just want to tell you that you'll be robbing yourself of, of the full message that is, is, is being unfolded if you do not take the time to listen to any of those sermons you've missed or if you feel like you just need to review it. Uh, it's the link to, to where you can find that is, is in the emails uh, as well as on our website. Uh, as we seek to, again, just, I, I just don't want you to miss anything. As we seek to interpret these prophetic chapters in light of the context of the united whole of, of Matthew's gospel, as well as the whole of the canon of Scripture. So I, I, we're going to read through. I've actually been uh, I find, finding it helpful for myself. I read through it during the week, but I, I, as a congregation as well. If we could just read through the, those first uh, few passages of Matthew 24 together, just so, so you know where we're looking and where we're, what we're preparing for. Matthew chapter 24. And uh, I'm going to read those first... Uh, 30 verses or so here. So I invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, these, these do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be here left one stone upon another, that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And false, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed and throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is in the housetop not go down to take what is in her ho his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. 
And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner, cor- the r- inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds one from one end of, the, of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So, a lot, so also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And this is the word of the Lord, and may it be so for us today as well. You may be seated. So again, I just want to remind all of you, one of the main reasons for belaboring many of the same themes as we, as we go step by step through Matthew, as I'm doing, is that I'm going to be arguing and preaching an interpretation of Matthew 24 that runs against the popular uh, evangelical contemporary grain that most of us uh, have only ever known in our lifetime. So it, it'll seem new to your ears for, for many of you. Again, and just to assure you, not new to history, Uh, not new to the history of the church, but new within my lifetime, at least, Um, and and, and most of yours. Uh, Whether that's from the influence of popular pastors uh, or popular apocalyptic novels and movies that uh, have become uh, more and more widespread. And so, so I'm aware of that. And and, and, and again, that view is more uh, the idea that um, of the interpretation that Jesus, in those, those verses we just read, that he is referring entirely to events that are still to occur in our future, or primarily to events that are to occur in our future at the very end of the church age. So that's probably what you, you're most familiar with. Whereas I am going to, be, to, to argue that the details of the Great Tribulation outlined in verses 4 to 34 were primarily speaking of events in the lifetime of its original audience at the end of the Old Covenant age with the destruction of the first century temple and the permanent removal of the sacrificial system. And so, uh, as I said, new to many of your ears, and so that's why I'm, I'm being so careful as we go through this to bring you along. Um, to leave no stone left unturned, uh, but not, not new to history. And again, I'll, I'll repeat myself, 
I, I will remain mindful that there are some of you who will not be persuaded by, by my conclusions that I present to you as we go along. But, and, and, and so I'm being mindful of that. My goal is still for all of you to guide all of, you, uh, all of us through this prophetic teaching together in a way that, that regardless of where you land, that if all who abide by faith in the vine of Christ alone would be able to grow together in our love and our delight in the Jewish Messiah and the King over all, all heaven and earth. And more specifically, that we would come to love all that His coming uh, entails. And so let's continue our review now of the chapters leading up to the Olivet Discourse uh, with the intention of today we're going to make it through verses 16 to 22. And that will leave us with a review of Matthew chapter 23, which sets the immediate context for us uh, to go into Matthew 24. Uh, in, that would be in uh, two weeks from now. So we're beginning in Matthew 16. And, and it really in these, these chapters now, it's progressively, it, it's... Uh, in, presenting the final proof of Israel's defiance and rejection of God's beloved Son and His anointed One, the Messiah. So Matthew 16, having spoken of Israel, we've already seen that He's spoken of Israel as an evil and adulterous generation multiple times. We note this remark again in verse 4 in response to the religious leaders' demand for a sign, of which we, we already have seen that Christ has um, he has done so. He's offered ample evidence of, demonstrations of, and would ultimately, he says, within the sign of Jonah, demonstrate by his coming death and resurrection. They have all the, the proof, all the signs uh, that they need to believe. And at verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So as a consequence of the religious leaders killing him, Jesus further teaches in, in verse 28. He says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That's a significant verse there. And this is perfectly, and if we just let it plainly fulfill, it's plainly fulfilled in the destruction of the temple 40 years later, rendering the old covenant ceremonial system permanently desolate. If there's no, there's no temple, there's no sacrifices. There's no, uh, there's no ceremonial uh, system to uphold. And that only some of those who were literally standing there before him would live to see it. Not all of them would. Some of them would be uh, martyred before them. But some of them would. A premillennial scholar, Henry Alford, explains, he says that this statement refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the full manifestation of the kingdom of Christ by the annihilation of the Jewish polity, which, uh, which event in this aspect has, as well as in all its terrible attendant details, would also be a type and earnest of the final coming of Christ. So he sees in it a foreshadowing of 
the, the, the coming of Christ at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead, but he's saying here that this is no doubt uh, in reference to the, um, to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. And then in Matthew 17, following the transfiguration of Christ on the mountain with Elijah and Moses appearing before Peter, James, and John, Jesus again confirms that John the Baptist had already fulfilled the Elijah prophecy of, Ma of Malachi chapter 4, five, verse 5. And Jesus laments that the Jews did not recognize this, nor would they recognize Jesus. Uh, so verse 12, Matthew 17, 12, he says, But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. And so Jesus again denounces that generation in verse 17 with an even stronger expression than we've seen so far, calling them a faithless and twisted generation. And this statement flows out of the fact that they had been given every reason and testimony from the signs and teachings of Christ to believe. And yet verse 20, 22 to 23 highlight again that they would ultimately reject and kill him in spite of that. And then we move to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 and into 19 provides the disciples with the practical teaching of why and how the new covenant community can and must be diligent to confront the sins and corruption that would seek to, to divide and tear at them from within commanding that we confront the sins of others with an eager willingness to extend unlimited forgiveness whenever sin is confessed, yet by no means tolerating the stubborn rebellion of the one who refuses to repent. So he's teaching us, right, how do we deal with sin in our own community individually? But again, I just want to kind of give you an overarching note there that the teaching and instruction that Christ provides to his, who, to his disciples who follow him has repeatedly gone at, um, uh, is in complete harmony with how God on a broader covenantal scale is dealing with Israel. That he, uh, that he has repeatedly gone out of his way to convict Israel of her sin against him, making his case known in the presence of all with the intention of extending mercy and forgiveness to, to the humble. Yet also, then, followed by the necessity of God rejecting the wicked who would persist in the rebellion against him. And, then, so, and so we move to Matthew 19, verse 28. In Matthew 19, 28, dramatically presents Jesus promising his disciples. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. While there are various layers to all that Christ is saying here, I'm just going to stick with, for the sake of time, uh, to what I believe is the, what, he's, what is primarily being said here and will help us for, for our study in Matthew 24. 
Uh, the phrase new world, right, when he says in the new world, uh, in most older translations was, was translated regeneration, in the regeneration. And the Greek, that's literally what the Greek word is, regeneration or uh, renewal, in the renewal. And what we have here is Jesus speaking of the seismic change from the fading old covenant system and world, the, the framework, to its fulfillment in the new eternal covenant. Uh, Baptist commentator John Gill agreed, noting that the regeneration spoken of here, the new world spoken of here, he says, means the, state, the new state of things in the church of God, which was foretold and is called the time of regeneration or setting all things right, which began upon the sealing up, sealing up the law and the prophets and the ministry of John the Baptist and of Christ, who both, when they began to preach, declared that this time, which they call the kingdom of heaven, was at hand and, just, and it was just ushering in. So, that's, so he's saying uh, it, it is the sealing up of the law and the prophets as John the Baptist and Christ were ushering in. He said, he, he, um, this, what, what Gil says uh, is this new dispensation called the regeneration. And Matthew Henry uh, also agrees, saying that the time of Christ appearing in this world was a time of regeneration or reformation, as Hebrews 9.10 says, when old things began to pass away and all things to look new. And, so, and I would just add in there, the Apostle Paul agrees as well in 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He is present tense, a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And so in addition to that 2 Corinthians passage, in addition to the regeneration of the individual believer, which he's talking about there, this would also be carried out in the passing away of the old covenant ties to the sacrificial system uh, with the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And so again, verse 28 uh, trying to give you the context for that word, the new world. He says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And so, since this is explicitly in the context of the new covenant era, the twelve thrones are given to the 12 disciples or apostles whom Ephesians 2.20 says formed the foundation of the church with Christ as the cornerstone. That's what it, how it describes the apostles, forming the foundation of the church with Christ as the cornerstone. So what we have being promised here is the ministry and testimony of the apostles being given authority by Christ he says, to judge, or which is literally the idea of ruling. The book of Judges, they, they were the rulers. They were, they were the ones who, who called the shots uh, and, and judged. And so it's the apostles who are given authority by Christ to, to judge or to rule the people of God, the new or regenerate Israel, 
or new covenant people, we could call them, which now includes the believing Gentiles in addition to the believing Jews. And we know from history and the rest of Scripture that the apostles were uniquely endowed with Christ's authority to testify in advance God's new covenant revelation, the good news of the Messiah's deliverance and of his reign. And what this means, by the way, for us now then, just just as a side application, is that we who hold to the teachings and and the witness of the apostles, which is contained in the canon of Scripture, either the apostles themselves or the, or the prophets, which the, the apostles stood upon. That we who hold to the apostles' teachings have been made administrators of Christ's kingdom on earth. And so that's a, that's a whole other topic, though. But as we move, keep moving here, because this, this, and you might be saying, well, what does that have to do with Matthew 24? It, it'll, all, it'll all fit together. Again, as I'm trying to help you see not just the different interpretation, but the, the difference in interpretation has to do with an entire framework with how, how we approach uh, that, these passages. So not just a difference in opinion on one passage, but, but a whole framework in terms of the coming of, of the kingdom. Uh, Matthew 20, I'm just going to highlight again in verse 18. This is repeated foretelling. See, we are going up to Jerusalem. And, uh, Jerusalem, it, the mention of going to Jerusalem in Matthew is only meant, it's in, in, especially in the Gospel of John, he's visiting J- Jerusalem all the time, but in Matthew, it's basically only brought up for him to go to his death. It, it's, not, it's not put in a nice light. He says, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. This brings us to chapter 21. Chapter 21 begins with Jesus entering Jerusalem, the capital of Israel the home of God's temple, with him riding in on a donkey in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9, where he seems to be accepted by the common people, at least, at least to the extent that they believe him to be the one who would liberate Israel from Roman rule and oppression. But then from there we must note that almost all of Christ's actions and teaching take place in the temple courts from verse 12. And and as you follow with me, you'll see it all the way through to the beginning of Matthew chapter 24, leading us right into the Olivet Discourse. So so I don't want you to miss that. That the, the, the temple setting is not a random occurrence that Matthew just passes over briefly when he gets to chapter 24, verse 1 to 2. Rather, in Matthew 21, verse 12, we have Jesus entering the temple to drive out the fraudulent currency exchangers and merchants, leaving for the... uh, Then he leaves briefly for the night in verse 17, and then returning to the temple in verse 23, 
And then from there, all the confrontations and heated exchanges with the religious leaders, is all, it's all taking place within the temple courts all the way up to Matthew chapter 24, verse 1, where it says in, in Matthew 24, 1, that Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So that statement is, is the buildup of all the, the conflict and the, the heat that is, that is going on for the, the previous two chapters to this point. So the condition and the state of the temple is not simply brought up in chapter 24 in passing, but since chapter 21, he is explicitly presenting God's judgment, not only upon the temple building, which he, he states, but we're seeing in these chapters, it's upon the rebellion and corruption of the, the entire system, of the people within its walls. So again, beginning in verse 12, 21-12, Jesus enters the temple, flipping tables, driving out the, the, the currency exchangers, the merchants, as well as, uh, as, as, well as all who bought sacrifices uh, to worship. He says, all who sold and bought in the temple. And by this, Christ is symbolically rejecting the whole system of sacrificial worship as it, as it then stood. And I say that he, it was symbolically rejecting it because, of course, uh, at that point, his action did not prevent anyone from, it, from returning and selling and buying the next day. It, it would continue for a time. And so it's, it's a symbolic prophecy which, of which we see many examples in the Old Testament as well. Acting out. Uh, what God would, would, would do. But the fulfillment of this judgment would be carried out once and for all in the destruction foretold by Jesus in Matthew 24, 2. The further evidence of the symbolic and pro prophetic action of driving out all who came to worship in the temple becomes apparent when we consider the surrounding context of the scripture that Jesus quotes there. Um, in verse 13, he says to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And if you turn with me to, to Jeremiah 7, if you want to see it for, you, for yourself, to see the surrounding context of that verse that Jesus quotes, Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 7, it's, uh, the quote is, verse, is from verse 11, but I'm going to begin in verse 8, so you can see the context. Jeremiah 7, 8. He says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely with offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered. Only go on and, and doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. 
where I made my, my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil my people, uh, of my people is, of Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust, and to that place that I gave, gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. And so, of course, Ephraim was the north. They had already been cast out uh, to Assyria. And now he's talking about the destruction of the temple when Babylon would come to Judah in the south. And so it's the same context, the same kind of warning that Jesus is now quoting to the religious uh, leaders and rulers and the people who are uh, buying and selling in the, in the temple courts. We see it is a part of God's denunciation, uh, in that context, it was a part of God's denunciation of Judah's false worship and his warning of the temple's coming destruction. Regardless of, even though Israel, right, they seem to always have this superstitious confidence, well, we have the temple here. As long as we have the temple... Uh, and we, we offer these, these sacrifices, we're good. And God's saying, He uh, can't stand it because it's done uh, falsely. Then when we turn to Matthew 21, verse 19, verses 19, we have the cursing of the fig tree speaking of the mountain being thrown in the sea, where the demonstrative, demonstrative this clearly refers to Mount Zion. When he says this mount, he's, he's talking about the temple mount, similar to the, to the temple cleansing. This was another acted out prophecy of judgment to come on Israel, uh, on Jerusalem, as the Gospel of Mark, uh, we don't see it as clearly here, but the Gospel of Mark mentions the tree was covered in leaves, which generally indicated it was ripe for harvest. They would expect leaves. When, there's, when the leaves came, there was an expectation the figs would be there. And so it had given the appearance of being ready, of producing fruits. Yet, of course, Jesus comes and he finds none. Luke 13, 6-9, Jesus similarly gives a fig tree parable. It's, it's a different situation, but he uses this, this, this illustration whereby he summarizes his three-and-a-half-year ministry to a people who bore no fruit in keeping with repentance. That's Luke 13, verse 6. And again, this interpretation of the fig tree representing fruitless Israel is further confirmed by a series of parables that Jesus gives while he is being pressed and questioned by the various branches of, of Israel's religious authorities. We see the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they're all coming at him. And these are, and, and these are the parables that he gives us. We have the parable of the two sons in verse 28 to 33 where he, contra he con uh, contrasts the hypocrisy of the religious leaders with the repentant obedience of the outcasts of Jewish society, with Jesus concluding to the religious leaders in verse 31, he says, Truly I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. 
Then this is followed by the parable of the tenants, vividly illustrating how after sending prophet after prophet, whom they would repeatedly abuse and kill, in an attempt to settle accounts with his servant Israel, with the tenants who were tending his vineyard, now having finally sent his own son, whom they will also kill, Jesus says that this last blazing rejection of God's authority is clearly the last straw in the lineup of God's witnesses against Israel, sealing her judgment. Jesus declares in verse 43 of that parable, he says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And so the word for people there is singular. Uh, it will be taken away from you and given to a people. Some translations say a nation. Because it's, it's singular, uh, so that it's, it's referring to a, a united people. And it speaks of a new holy nation, or a holy people. If you turn to 1 Peter 2, verse 4. In 1 Peter 2, verse 4, he explains... As you come to him, that is Jesus Christ, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is the new covenant uh, worship. He says, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. So again, that's where the temple was. But he's saying, I'm laying a, 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 a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, Quote, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. What did Jesus say in verse 43? He says, the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And again, so First Peter, he concludes. He says, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do, but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's the same word. A holy people. A people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellence of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous night. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So that brings us into Matthew 22. Just briefly, I'm going to mention uh, in verses 1 to 14, Jesus presents the parable of the king, representing God the Father who gives a wedding feast for his son. And those who were originally invited, referring to the Jews, refused to come 
and to acknowledge the union of the son with his bride. And as a consequence, verse 7 says that the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. Which again is exactly what happens in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And then that is followed in Matthew 22 by a series of interactions demonstrating Jesus' superior knowledge and understanding of the Old Testament scriptures, exposing the spiritual veil that was covering the eyes of Israel's religious leaders. And so just for a conclusion for today, This brief survey of Matthew's Gospel is important for recalling the setting of the literary and historical context of the Olivet Discourse. Both the repeated actions and the teaching of Jesus highlight God's approaching wrath upon Israel. And this presentation of Israel's spiritual condition and historical expectation is so obvious, it's so frequent, so uh, widespread in the, in the New Testament that many uh, liberal historians and theologians, and I would say that they, they, they see this because it's so obvious, but they, wrong, they draw the wrong conclusion. And they wrongly charge that the New Testament itself is the ultimate source of anti-Semitism in the world. That this negative evaluation of the New Testament in general, they especially see in Matthew's Gospel in particular. For example, regarding the, the sons of the kingdom being cast out in Matthew 8.11, a Jewish scholar, David Fluser, comments, he says, this vulgar anti-Judaism of many, of many members of the Gentile church. Uh, or regarding the infamous declaration of the Jews in, in Matthew 27, that we'll see later, when the Jews were given the option between crucifying uh, Barabbas or Jesus and all the people answer his blood be on us and our children in response to this record another scholar Julie uh, Gallenbush she laments and says it is hard to imagine a more anti-Jewish account than this most Jewish gospel so I, I quote them to say that it's, it's, you, you don't have to be a, a scholar, or I was going to say rocket scientist, you don't have to be a scholar to see this. However, it's, naive, it's a naive reading of the, of the whole context of the New Testament's case against Israel. And I, I, I say they are as blind to the plain meaning of Scripture as the unbelieving critics of Jesus they were. It is true that the ancient rhetoric was far more vigorous than we are used to uh, in our, for our modern taste and preference for, for beating around the bush and, and using politically correct language all the time to, uh, to, to try to um, get our point across. The, the sharp language of Jesus calling the self-serving leaders, and right, calling them an unbelieving and a twisted generation, and uh, calling them hypocrites, blind guides, fools, serpents, broods of vipers, uh, sons of hell. You know, that's, that, that causes our ears to tingle a bit in our, our modern sensitivities. 
But rather than being anti-Semitic, the language that Matthew and Jesus was a Jew, both were Jews, were employing was something that the Jews themselves would use uh, within their own inter, inter-party debates. There is ample historical examples of this in the, uh, from history as well as from the, the Old Testament prophets as well and their denunciations of, of Israel's false uh, worship and forsaking of the Lord. And so as Christians, what I'm just... I'm trying to just call us to and encourage you in. We must recognize the redemptive historical significance of Matthew's strong message against Israel. As this is exactly what Israel's own Bible warns about, right? The the Old Testament scriptures warns of. uh, and, And you could look through Deuteronomy chapter 28 through to the end yourself. But I'm just going to read a few verses. Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then later in verse 49, he says, The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you are destroyed. It shall not leave the grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock, until they have caused you to perish. They shall besiege you in all your towns until, the, until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout your land. And they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all the land which the Lord your God has given you. And if you keep reading all the way down to uh, chapter 29, verse 29, He just continues to describe the cursings to disobedient Israel. In verse 29, chapter 29, verse 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. I just want to point something out to you here. That what, what's he saying there? As he's, he's, like, he's, he's, he's announcing these cursings. of if, 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 you, if, if you turn away from the Lord, this is what's going to happen. And, so, and he concludes, he says, the secret things belong to the Lord. I think given Israel's wayward history to this point, right? if you think at that point in Deuteronomy, they, they haven't had the most glorious track record to that point. Um, there's a reason why they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before they're, they're hearing, and it's another generation before they're hearing this message. And so given that history, Moses, I think, expresses a degree of uncertainty concerning Israel's future. The secret things belong to the Lord. But ultimately, what he's, he's saying is he leaves that, the uncertainty he feels about all of this, where this is going, He's leaving it to the sovereign purposes of God while calling Israel to faithful obedience in the present. He says, for the, as far as the things that are revealed, 
right? Let us do what, what has been revealed. But concerning the secret of how God would work this out in history, how is, he, how is God going to, how is this all going to turn out? Well, Romans 16, verse 25 concludes this. Romans 16, verse 25. He says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of, of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. Okay, so according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. He says, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So what are the secret things there? It's the mystery of the gospel revealed in Christ. And then I want you to bring you back to how does that, how does that make sense with Deuteronomy in chapter 30. So the secret things belong to the Lord. Well, they don't know what that is. I just told you what it is revealed later. But, may, but, but Israel's call for now just to, to, to obedience, to trust the Lord and obey Him. And he's just pronounced all the judgments that would come upon them if they were to forsake the Lord and disobey Him. And then chapter 30 says this, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, so he's saying it's good, all of this is going to come upon you, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God and your children and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. And he will gather you. He will ecclesi, he will, he will church you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And this is what I want you to see. How this all ties together to what I'm saying. In verse 6 he says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love so that in other words God so he's saying he's, he's, he's calling all these these pronouncements of judgment if you forsake the Lord if you disobey him and he says but when this time comes when you turn to him and you obey him with all your heart with all your soul with all your mind but again, how, right? Like, where is the power? Where, how, how is that going to be any different from any other time that God has commanded us this? He's already commanded them. They already have that law. Verse 6 says, It'll be when God will circumcise your heart so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. God's going to do it. 
God's going to plant his spirit within you. Christ in you. That is, and so Colossians 1.26 says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, of this secret, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So this is not anti-Semitism. It's biblical covenantalism. And in it, Christ is revealed, who is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, so that's going to set us up. Now, as we, we, we uh, will go into Matthew 23 next week, um, with those final woes pronounced upon uh, the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, preparing us for the Olivet Discourse. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that... Um, we thank you for the gift of, the, of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for the light that, you have, that has come in Christ Jesus. Uh, Lord, that apart from his salvation and your saving us, Lord, we are no, uh, we are no, no better off um, than the most knowledgeable uh, scribe and, or, and religious Pharisee in Jesus' day. And so, Lord, in thanking you, I ask for your blessing upon our study so far and our continued study of these scriptures. That we would grow in our love and our knowledge of you. And that it would not just be, um, again, that this would not just be an increase in our, our knowledge of certain things, but God, that it would, um, you would stir us to greater confidence and boldness uh, in our daily life of following after you, that we would see that uh, that our, our understanding of your of the coming of your judgment, whether it's in the past that ha that has happened, Lord, that, or we look are looking to the judgment to come when when you return, that we see that you are true to your word. And Lord, that we can look back and know that if you've acted faithfully in the past, we can certainly expect you to keep your word and what you've promised in the future, whether that be cursing or blessing. And so Lord, turn our hearts to, to Christ in faith today. Uh, humble those who would seek to um, hold their chest up high and boast in their own accomplishments and their own righteousness. Lord, and uh, bring us all low before him that we would find, uh, find rest uh, and, and redemption for our souls in Christ here. In Jesus' name, amen.